Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey, which is now nearing the end of 1979. It is Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks by Terence Dix, one of his short books, but a book that has tremendous meaning for me, as we'll get to a little bit later in the hour. In publication order, this is also the first book to have a cover by Andrew Skilleter, an artist who is prolific in the Doctor Who and the Target range. We will have many opportunities to talk about his work in the months and years to come on this podcast, but this is where it all begins for him. Speaking of the podcast, we have a new review up on Apple Podcasts, and this comes from Keith Say at 50 DW50 on Twitter. Keith and I very recently were together on an episode of the Trap One podcast talking about the Target novelization. Although in publication order, this is a book that was released in 2022. It was the novelization of David Fisher's audiobook, his original audiobook of The Stones of Blood, which came out on audio about 10 years earlier, but has finally been released in book form. We'll be talking about The Stones of Blood on this podcast, the Terrence Dix novelization, in a few weeks with a different guest. But it was fun, as it always is, to talk with Keith over on Trap One. And thank you, Keith, for the following review. He writes, On Target, cool and specialist podcast. Recommend. And he gave us five stars. Thanks very much. Why don't you be like Keith? and leave us a five-star or an honest review on your podcast ranking app of choice. I'm happy to announce that we are also for episode 50, my episode last week on the War Games with Ross Aitken and several other friends of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. We made number 22 for the week for sci-fi podcast out of Great Britain on Ranked as Apple Podcasts. That is probably the single best showing that I've had in the first year of this program. So I thank you very much to everybody who listened or downloaded and helped make that ranking possible. I'll be on Trap One a couple more times between now and the end of the year, talking about a few different topics. I will certainly point out to you on this show when I am over on Trap One. I will also be doing a voice uh, cameo in an upcoming episode of Reality Bomb 104, which is going to be recording today as I release this podcast and will hopefully be out very soon. I will, of course, put a link to that in the show notes when that episode is finally released. My guest this week is Larry von Mersbergen. He is the founder and CEO of the Direction Point Podcast Network. That is the network to which I have belonged for the last month or two on this show. Very good time talking to Larry. His Doctor Who fandom goes back to pretty much Doctor Who's fandom origin in the United States when it was first screened in Chicago in 1975. Keith has been involved in almost every element of fandom from watching the show when it first came out in the States, to conventions, 
to the distribution of the hardcover versions of the novelizations in the 1980s. Larry and I will talk about all that over the coming hour. We will also debate the merits of pizza from our relative hometowns, New York versus Chicago. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to find out where I fall on that particular debate. That was a fun conversation to have and a fun conversation to edit and hopefully a fun conversation for all of you to listen to as well. Next week, I will probably be at LI Who. I will have an episode that is going to be recorded this week, and that will be released while I am away at the convention. That will be the last Target book of 1979. That's next week's episode. As I always do on this show, I have a season that encompasses two years of Target books. This is season three. And season three will end with next week's novelization, the December 1979 Target book. That is book 52, or the 52nd release put out by Target. The numbering is a little bit different, which we'll talk about later. But that was the last of the 1979 books. So the week after next, the weekend after L.I. Who, we will have a bonus episode, not covering any one book in particular, but hopefully bringing you a lot of stories and other good stuff from L.I. Who. I will also use that bonus episode to play you the 15 minutes of last week's episode, the outtake where Ross Aitken and I discussed the power of the Doctor, the Jodie Whittaker slash Chris Chibnall finale. But we have a lot to discuss this week in terms of Destiny of the Daleks and my interview with Larry von Mersbergen. So let's get to it. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. And I am happy to be joined now by the CEO and founder of the Doctor Who Direction Point Podcast Network. Coming to us from Chicago is Larry Von Mersberg. And Larry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. Great to be here. So tell us, I've joined your network about a month or so ago. And up until yesterday, I was the newest podcast on your network, although somebody has just come in after me. So I am now yesterday's news. But how did Direction Point get started? And what was your inspiration? Well, that's a that's a good question. Actually, you're now a seasoned veteran since somebody else joined. So um, the uh, the idea came uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, you might have heard of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. Yes. Okay. Well, that was kind of where this came from because all of a sudden a bunch of podcasters were contacting me saying, Hey, what happened to the Alliance? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me go check. And now it's a bunch of broken links and broken images. And, um, I tried to message them on Facebook. I sent them emails and it's like, nobody is driving the boat. So I said, uh, so I sat down with, uh, with Tony Witt Nathan Laws and Eric Olbranson. And I said, Hey, 
how about we start a network that actually helps Doctor Who podcasters versus, you know, here you go, we're going to leave you out here and not help you. And so I came up with the idea from the Crotons direction point, since they got to have a, 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 a place to, somebody's got to guide them where to go. And I thought, what a perfect identity. And so we formed um, that network based on the original podcasts, the uh, Doctor Who Collectors podcast, my show, uh, Target Book Club podcast, Tony's show, the Police Box in a Junkyard, and Time Streams. And from there, we kind of launched that. We promoted it. We spoke about it at Chicago TARDIS. And uh, I just, you know, we put the website up. We put a Facebook page out there. We kind of started using the ending tag. And then some more people started to flood in, such as uh, Traveling the Vortex, which has been around for a while. And uh, of course, your podcast, Doctor Who Literature, and now Time Ram. Uh, but we also have the old Doctor Who show as well. So yes. it's So it's going slowly well and other people have been contacting me to find out more information. And, you know, like I said, it's no cost. Uh, the, the, the website costs are being covered uh, by sponsorships. So it's not something that I have to worry about. And I feel it's better that we throw trailers into other podcasts to see if we can't snag a few listeners along the way. And that uh, has actually shown positive growth across all of the podcasts in the network, because somebody listening to, Do let's say, the Doctor Who Target Book Club, oh, here's your trailer and says, oh, hey, they're, they're also talking about Target Books and that's my thing. And so we're going there. And, and of course, my trailer goes in and says, well, yeah, I collect Target Books. I want to talk about that. So it kind of uh, spiraled uh, into that. And now it's uh, coming on its second year and it's very successful. Yeah, I'll say the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance was very valuable for me about 10 years ago when I first started listening to podcasts seriously, and since then it's become a terrible habit. But <laughs> when I first started looking for Doctor Who Podcasts, that was obviously the first thing that I found. And some of the shows that I still listen to, I discovered through the Podcast Alliance. However, the person who started it appears to have abandoned it. So when I try to submit my own podcast, the link is broken. And based on the comments on the page, it appears to have been broken for a couple of years now. So the person who left it behind didn't leave a going away message. No, and not even on the forum that goes with it. It was kind of, uh, it's completely unmanned. And at some point, it's just going to fall off the web because somebody's not paying the bills. So it'll it'll happen that way. And uh, already broken images, broken links. And I just said, well, that's, that's not going to work for anybody who wants to get a podcast going and get your word out there. Uh, so I thought of a different idea. And so far, it's been embraced and it's going well. And for me, of course, the link to the episode, The Crotons, is pretty pivotal because I'm a 60s who black and white who kind of guy that's really my wheelhouse when I think of the show my immediate thought is black and white 1960s William Hartnell Patrick Troughton even though the show has gone on for 53 years since then <laughs> my default is still black and white so the Crotons is one of my guilty pleasures and now I get to have a Crotons audio clip in my show <laughs> twice every week as I play your tag at the beginning and the yes. very end yeah, I, I noticed that. Yeah, for, for me, the Crotons was special because I'll tell you a quick story. Back in 1984, I went to the TARDIS 21 convention in Chicago. And at that same convention, uh, not only getting to meet Patrick Troughton, but that was the first time I saw the Crotons on the big screen. And after it was done, 
uh, the lights came up and Patrick Troughton came out on stage and did a Q&A about it. So it was a very exciting moment. And uh, I still it's still one of my favorite Troughton stories. That came to my PBS stations because I had access to five or six PBS stations growing up in New York. So yeah. in late 85, New Jersey Network got the Hartnell and Troughton package. And that was when I first discovered that a whole chunk of the 1960s was missing. Yes. When, when they announced the episodes they were going to be screening, it was 17 serials from Hartnell, which is missing 12. And then they only had five, because that's all that was existing in 1985. Five of the Troutons, starting with the Dominators, going through the war game. So the Crotons was one of the five. And New Jersey Network commissioned a half-hour show trailing the Hartnell and Troughton and Colin Baker package. With They, they just got in season 21 mm-hmm. at the same time. So they showed a 60-second clip from part four of the Crotons. And that was the very first live Troughton that I saw in the wild. Mm-hmm. And that's been kind of imprinted on my head ever since. And then I got the novelization. Novelization came out in late 1985. And I remember where and when and why I bought it the last week of December 1985 in Manhattan at the original Forbidden Planet bookstore. Mm -hmm. And that's a story that I'll reserve for when I get there, episodes 98 and 99. I got the Crotons and the Invasion on the same day. But yeah, Crotons, I, I realize it has faults. And I realize that if you were to line up a thousand Doctor Who fans in a room, Maybe only two or three of them would point out the Crotons as their favorites, but I think it has a lot of heart and I'm pretty fond of it. Oh, me too. I think it's a great story. I thought, well, it was my first Troughton, so it was definitely something that was close to my heart. Not to mention meeting Patrick Troughton that same time. Oh, of course. A pleasure that I unfortunately never had. So yeah. your podcast is the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Tell us how long has that been around? What was your motivation for creating that and how's it going? Well, uh, it the, the story goes back a long time, but uh, the podcast started a little over four years ago uh, because I noticed there was a gap uh, of anybody talking about collecting Doctor Who merchandise and talking about the merchandise. And uh, the only other person that um, I know out there that might have carried this podcast uh, as well would be David J. Howe. And uh, he has the largest Doctor Who collection in the world. Uh, I'm told I'm pretty close to that, although the Museum in Indianapolis probably overtakes me by quite a bit. Um, I've been collecting Doctor Who for 41 years, and it started in 84 when I opened up a small Doctor Who shop in Chicago called Bundles from Britain. And Bundles from Britain was uh, the only shop, and I'll, I'll pop this up for you here, but I'll, you know, your listeners can't see it, but this is the catalog from 1986, hand-drawn. And it, uh, we were the first store to basically serve Doctor Who fans. We basically took our shop in the car and went from fan club to fan club to fan club. And so... After I arrived at, uh, there was a fan club in Chicago called the Many Companions of Doctor Who, and they were really overwhelmed with what I was doing to the point where my second customer became my partner, and his name is Gene Smith, if you know that name. I unfortunately don't, but... Well, uh, on him, he is now the CEO of Alien Entertainment and the showrunner of Chicago TARDIS. Okay, I have definitely heard of both of those things. I have been to the old Chicago Visions in the late 90s because I was in law school in in northwest Ohio, so it was a fairly easy drive. But I have not been to the Chicago Con since Visions 97 because 
Chicago okay. TARDIS being the weekend of Thanksgiving is not an easy sell to get away from the wife and kid. <laughs> gotcha. Well, that was uh, Gene's first convention was Visions. So that was, uh, he started that in 91, I believe. And it was right after Spirit of Light kind of finally went defunct in the late 80s because um, we were both dealers at TARDIS 22 in Chicago. And that's where I kind of started gather. You know, I bought some things in 81. I had enough inventory at 84. And by the way, I was 15 years old at the time. Oh gosh. When I, when I started this little shop. So um, it, I had a, I had such, I had, a, I had connections in England. I was doing trades and purchases using uh, money order drafts for the UK. I had to learn about international shipping before there was an internet or PayPal or anything like that. And so we actually got to a point where in 86, we were the sole distributor of Doctor Who classic hardcovers in the United States. Oh, wow. And uh, that's because Lyle Stewart, who did the Target books, decided, you know, they tried to sell them here in the United States. Nobody wanted them. So when we ordered our Target books for the uh, TARDIS 22, uh, they said, hey, are you interested in the hardcovers? I said, well, sure. So they sent us the entire stock. So we had a stock of about 100 titles of hardcover books, uh, including Destiny of the Daleks, by the way, which is, I know, the episode of the day. Uh, yes. And we sold out of most of them in the in the next three years. So there were a bunch of titles that were distributed right here in the United States that uh, are now popping up on eBay in mint condition uh, for many, much more than that, <laughs> than they sold. Because uh, we sold, uh, the book sold for anywhere from 18 to $21 back in 1985. Um, in 1989, I decided to go to college and I sold my share of the business to Gene Smith, not knowing that he continued with it because I missed, uh, I was, you know, I became a teacher and I went on with my, my life and I continued to collect Doctor Who, but I stayed uh, pretty much out of the world of, of conventions and whatnot. But I was uh, in contact with Katie Manning. She and I became friends in 85 and she gave me her address and said, Hey, write me. So I did. Oh, wow. And then, and then a few years ago, I say 2016, um, she emailed me and said, Hey, follow me on Twitter. It's a little easier. So we follow each other on Twitter and then told me she was going to be in Lombard, Illinois for a convention. I said, Oh, that's not far from me. I live about 20 minutes from there. So I, I look it up. I look up this convention. It's called Chicago TARDIS. And I buy a one day pass. I don't know anything about this convention, by the way. I'm going in there blind. So I go in there and uh, I walk around. And first thing everybody says is, hey, how come you're not in costume? I said, well, <laughs> it's my first convention in 20 some odd years. I, I'm just going to walk around. And, um, and then I walk into the dealer's room and the dealer's room is a pretty big ballroom and half the room is one dealer. And I'm looking at that going, holy cow. And this guy walks up to me and says, hey, can I help you find somebody? I said, no, I'm just admiring this setup. This is like nothing I'd ever imagined because I used to do these conventions back in the 80s. He goes, oh, me too. What a small world. And I look at him, I go, wait a minute. <laughs> That's the first time I'd seen Gene in almost 30 years. And so he was like, he was like, Hey, oh man, it's great to see you. I said, would you like to meet uh, the guests? I said, sure. So he took me backstage and I met Paul McGann and I got to see Katie for the first time in 20 years and Richard Franklin and John Levine. It was, it was really cool. And uh, so now I'm, now I'm 
part of the VIP group of Chicago Tardis. I do. I speak there. I I do uh, a lot of panels there. I do a collecting panel. I I do a lot with that. And of course, it's a great place to promote the Doctor Who podcasts and the Direction Point Network. But that's kind of where it started. I I started watching Doctor Who on September the twenty seventh, nineteen seventy five. And it was episode one of the mutants that aired here in Chicago. Oh, wow. So I was going to say, I had John Peel on my show several months ago yeah, yeah. and we talked cause he's been a fan basically for almost 60 years. Cause he comes in almost at the very, very, very beginning. Right. So we covered 60 years of fandom during a 60 minute conversation. And when I was talking to you and in the run up for researching and writing this interview, I realized that you obviously don't go as far back as John Peel, having not been A, alive, or B, alive, alive in the long. UK in 1963. <laughs> but you pretty much were there for the very beginning of American fandom, which I believe yes. begins with the Chicago stations airing the Pertwee episodes in the early to mid-70s. Yes, I uh, started, uh, like I said, that was the date it started, September 27, 1975. They got a John Pertwee package all in color, and they showed the episodes in, I guess, the order that the cans arrived in because they weren't in episodic <laughs> order. It started with the mutants, and then it went to uh, the Mind of Evil, and then the Claws of Axos, and then Day of the Daleks, then the Demons, then Colony in Space, and then... Uh, the, the time monster. And that was the order of that. And then um, a few years I've watched, I've never missed an episode. I'm actually, no, I missed one episode because one day I went to turn it on and they were showing underworld and I was confused. So uh, I'm like, wait a minute, this is not the same guy. I'm used to. So I turned it off. And a few weeks later I thought, well, let me, it's back on again. Let me come back to it. And I kid you not episode one of robot. Oh, that's a great place to start. So they showed Underworld and then Robot, by the way, in that order. So um, I watched the regeneration and I was like, okay, I see. So I kept watching it and they moved it to a daily format from 530 to 6 every uh, every day uh, in Chicago until about 1984. Then they moved it to Saturday mornings at 9 in the the movie length uh, cut versions. And then they added it to Sunday nights at 11 p.m., starting with the the Rebos operation and going through the New Bakers. And so then as soon as the Saturday mornings reached Invasion of Time, they stopped it on Saturday morning and you could only watch it Sunday evening at 11. Uh, And one of the nice things about being part of a large fan club in Chicago back in the 80s is we got to go to the TV station and we were the guys answering the phones during the pledge break. Uh, for Doctor Who, because that's where they raised the most money. It was the most popular show on the network. And they even had a huge picture of Tom Baker. They had Tom Baker in the studio in 84 when he came for the um, uh, convention. Uh, in, 80, in 85, John Pertwee went over to the Son of Svengooli show, which is a local guy who used to do the creature features on the weekend kind of yes. thing. And he, and he did he did that. And then... Um, then Tom Baker appeared on one of the local news stations, which he totally um, uh, dominated the interview because the person that they chose to interview him had never heard of him. But <laughs> clearly people that, but when he walked in, people in the newsroom were like, Oh my God, it's Dr. Who. But they got a guy on there who was like, so uh, uh, why is your show so popular? And he said, and Tom Baker said, well, you know, people like you who invent, I, I mean, write the news. <laughs> 
you know, it was, he kind of, he kind of got him, but um, it was really quite, um, it was quite something in that time period. Of course, then when I realized in 83, I guess the first convention came to Chicago uh, that was, uh, I guess Tom Baker was here in 79, but that didn't get a lot of press. But in 83, uh, a guy named Larry Charette, who was the guy who started Comic-Con, uh, he had a convention at one of the Ramada Inns with Peter Davison, Janet Fielding, and John Nathan Turner. And so I went to that. That was a, uh, I remember that was a, t- it was a pricey ticket in 83, uh, 35 bucks. Um, but uh, we went and in the program, all the local Doctor Who clubs listed their uh, information. So it was real easy for me trying to get a business started to just start calling down the list. And we started visiting all these clubs all across the the, the, uh, the suburbs of Chicago. It was really quite something. It was a huge, huge thing here. The, I mean, the Friends of Doctor Who was at the biggest club in Chicago. And we had the Many Companions, the Emissaries of the White Guardians, the Unit Irregulars, the uh, the the warriors of Gallifrey that were, they were all over the place and they kind of died out in the early nineties when fandom kind of died out after the show was canceled in 89 and right. thing, things kind of, and that's, that's why in 91 uh, vision started to try to get more uh, in the first, I believe the first visions had John Pertwee had, um, you know, a few of the old, you know, Liz Slayton was there. They got as many of the uh, big, big guns as they could. And that started that whole thing. And and now it's, you know, uh, Tardis, Chicago TARDIS is just in a few weeks. And we've got Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Eldred, who's uh, were just in Power of the Doctor. So that's big. Uh, we just got Sophia Miles, who was the Madame de Pompadour in, yes. in the Fireplace. Uh, Fraser Hines comes with your ticket at every convention. So he'll be there. Um Zoe, uh, Wendy Padbury will be there, uh, along with, uh, Clem, uh, not Clem. So, um, and a whole bunch of big Finnish people like Lauren Cornelius, who's a good friend of mine, uh, Tim Traylor, um, the daughter of Carol of, uh, Carol and John will be there. Uh, Ashley, I think her name. So, so it's going to be a great convention and a lot of the direction point people will be there. So it'll be fun. It's funny that you mention all those names because I'm going to be a Long Island Doctor Who LI yeah, weekend yeah. after next, and that's I think the weekend before Chicago Tardis. So we're yeah. So Fraser Hines is going to be there. I think he's been at every LI Who since the very beginning, and Wendy Padbury will be there. Sophie Aldred, Janet Fielding, mm-hmm. Peter Davison. So I imagine they coming to Long Island, stay in New York for a few days, go out to Chicago, and do the conventions on back-to-back weekends. Yeah, because I think Fraser Hines has uh, Thanksgiving dinner with Gene Smith. So because they've they've known each other for a long time. And so that that's a nice uh, it's a nice uh, thing for him. I know he loves it. In fact, I'm going to be taking Fraser for his first Chicago style pizza when he gets here, because uh, I had uh, Lauren Cornelius on my program uh, not long ago as she became Dodo Chaplet. And she said, if I come back to Chicago, will you take me for pizza i said yeah so uh she got confirmed for chicago so on facebook i said hey are you up for pizza well fraser chimed in and said i want to go too (laughs) and this is where i'm going to now torment my uk listeners with a little bit of a friendly regional u.s rivalry being a native new yorker i was not aware that chicago too had pizza bless your hearts well, you know, that's the thing. I, I know some people like to fold their pizza, but some people like to get a knife and a fork and really dig in. 
knife and a fork is antithetical and inimical to the New York style of pizza. And yes, I, I've had Chicago style pizza. I know what deep dish is, and it's okay, but it's it's cheesy bread with toppings. It is not pizza, which in my default is New York pizza. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? I do love a good New York slice and I will, I always respect it well. <laughs> and if any of your guests happen to be in Brooklyn, I will treat them to any New York style slice at any one of my many favorite Brooklyn pizzerias. That sounds good. I think if uh, my listeners will hear this and say, absolutely, I think you should take them up on it. <laughs> <laughs> So with the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, you've had a lot of terrific guests. I've heard Lauren Cornelius on your show. You've had Sadie Miller, who's also been on my show at one point a few months ago. So you've you've had some terrific guests. So I imagine that having been on the convention scene for a long time and having been in fandom for nearly 50 years, you must have a pretty (laughs) impressive Rolodex. Yeah, I'd say so. It was uh, it's a lot of fun to reach out and and be able to talk to some of the people who made the show possible. I mean, I've got um, I'm going to have Peter Purvis on the show. We finally got our uh, we reached our uh, our fundraising goal because we got to we got to take care of our aging Doctor Who fans. I had to work with his agent and he doesn't get any money anymore. So we're going to take care of him. Uh, I've got Tasha Achilleos coming on the program uh, because. I had Chris Achilleos booked for February and he passed away uh, before that. And it just, it just broke our hearts. And uh, I've been, I've been good friends with Chris for a long time and his wife is a, is a wonderful lady. And she and I have been talking a lot since his passing and she's um, to a point now where she's ready to talk uh, and try to see, you know, my big question of course is when will his art shop open up again? Because they're trying to get, all that stuff, all those affairs taken care of so that they can get somebody to run his, his shop. Cause people still want the prints. And I got, I think I have one of the last things he did because just before he passed away, I got a, a cover of the day of the Daleks cover uh, signed uh, to Larry, the doctor who collectors podcast, your friend, Chris. Oh, wow. And uh, that was, that's, that's, that's on my wall just over here. And it's just, it's something I, I look at every time I do a podcast because for one thing, that's one of my, one of my favorite John Pertwee stories, but it's also one of my favorite covers that sadly never got a hardback treatment back when it came out in 74. So I was like, uh, but but Chris was always kind and, and Tasha was great. I'm going to have Andrew Skilleter on the program because uh, Illuminart is coming out. Yes. And uh, the gold edition books all sold out. Um, I've got one coming because he's doing a, a custom uh, John Pertwee uh, drawing. And each one of those, he does a custom drawing for you. So it's kind of nice. And then um, we're going to go through his artwork, which, by the way, did the cover of Destiny of the Daleks. I was going to say, um, obviously, my show, whereas Tony Witt and the Doctor Who <laughs> Target Book Club podcast goes in story order. And right. I, I, re- I met Tony on the Facebook Target group, and I listened to the very first episode of that show, and I've been listening ever since, and I've been on two episodes. But because I'm going in the random publication order, I'm just getting now to Destiny of the Daleks, which is November 1979. Then right, I have yeah. the third or fourth edition paperback. This is the first Andrew Skilleter cover art for Dr. Who in publication order, November, 1979. Right. And this is, this is the hardcover that came out at the exact same time as the paperback. Uh, and uh, we just did actually our, uh, I just did an episode. Uh, I have a series going on on the classic hardcovers and we are doing those in publication order. 
Yeah, I have a two-month podcast backlog, but I think the last episode of yours that I heard was you and Tony Witt going through the 1979 hardcovers. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, we are getting ready to do the 1980 episode, uh, and it's uh, it's an interesting uh, story because when I went through that, uh, there was a lot of controversy with those classic hardcovers because there's a lot of collectors out there that are arguing about what they're worth, uh, what the what the print run was, what the information is about certain books. Um, I got uh, into a little bit of trouble in one of the episodes because I had a source that had a second printing of the Brain of Morbius, in and I all of a sudden I got like nailed online thing. Hey, where is your source? What is your proof? And I'm like, hold on a second. Hold on a second, guys. Calm down. These were all friendly people. But yeah. uh, I, I said, okay, hold on. I've got a source here. It's the Christopher Stone uh, unofficial Doctor Who book guide. And it's a pretty good book. I mean, it's very thorough. Uh, I've also got this uh, based on the BB, popular BBC television serial book by uh uh, John Mc, McMahon, I think, or something, or McMahon or something like that. And he's got information that contradicts that information. So we put a call out there to saying, hey, does anybody have this on their shelf that could give us a photo of the first page and put this to bed? But so far, not so much. That's the uh, That one kind of stirred up some controversy. And then, of course, I came up uh, in my collection, I've got the very elusive third printing of the Loch Ness Monster, which is the only classic hardcover to get a third printing. And then I thought for years that the Space War was the last reprint. And then I'm like, nope, you're wrong. In 85, the two doctors got a second printing on the hardcover. And then that was it because the hardcover range ends in 1988 uh, and never kept pace with the paperbacks. And we were also putting forth the theory that W.H. Allen lost a lot of money on these Doctor Who hardcover books because uh, I was just looking at the publication numbers, let's say for Destiny of the Daleks, uh, with all the paperback printings uh, from 81 to 85, 64,000 paperbacks were printed. Wow. Only 4,000 uh, hardcovers were done. And the cost was £3.50, which is roughly uh, almost $20 in today's money. So that's a lot of money for somebody back then to buy it. And then uh, when I got the call uh, in 85, hey, do you want all these hardcovers? Well, we got them. We paid very little for them and found out that they were dumping them because they weren't selling. Uh, and then there was the controversy about the Doctor Who Junior books, uh, the giant robot and brain of Morbius, which yes. also came out in hardcover, um, which is crazy because those were supposed to be for kids five to eight. And I was on Tony Witt's podcast when he reviewed those books and those got very low ratings. Um, they weren't very good at all. Um, and so I was thinking uh, when I was ordering hardcovers back in the eighties, we asked them for the junior books and they said they were completely unavailable and they had just come out. So, we thought maybe WH Allen said, well, they're not working. So they dumped them because a bunch of copies of giant robot are appearing online with the first pages ripped out of them. Huh? Now that's what got my attention because I have a copy in my collection with the first three pages ripped out. There's a copy sitting on eBay with the first three pages ripped out completely random. And I said, well, that must've happened to all the copies. They ripped out the title page, the uh, acknowledgements page. I guess in some places they ripped the cover off, but here they just ripped out the first three pages and tossed them in a dumpster. 
Yeah, when I worked at a bookstore in Baltimore, when I was working my way through law school in the mid-90s, our shop, this was, an, this was a small local chain, now long since defunct, when we were returning paperbacks to the publisher, we would rip the paperback cover off and then return right. it that way, minus the cover. So I guess this was the same pattern for hardcovers. Instead of ripping off the cover, you'd tear out the first three pages, title yeah, and copyright. Co- the cover would be really hard to rip off. I can <laughs> imagine. So I imagine the first three pages. So I'm starting to see that pattern. And so it's been a really neat uh, trip to go through. What I do is I talk about the the book and its value and when it was printed, who did the cover, what's on the inside jacket. Um, we had some interesting stories there, like uh, the War Games, which you just uh, did. Uh, the inside flap, the first hundred copies, had a picture of Terrence Dix with Malcolm Hulk's biography. Oh, and wow. so when when they noticed it, they didn't they didn't dump the first hundred. They just stopped the presses. They took his photo out and just printed the bio alone. So my copy of war games has just the bio, but every time I see a copy of war games for sale, I'll email the seller and say, Hey, is there a photo of the author on the inside of the jacket without trying to blot on too much? And they'll go, Nope, sorry. I'm like, oh, okay, never mind." <laughs> Cause I'm looking for one of those that has Terrence Dix on the cover. Uh, it's, it's just such a, an interesting game. Some of them are, of course, ex-library copies that were either pulled or stolen from a library or they're retail copies, copies that went to a a bookstore or publisher copies that were sent directly. And I'm fortunate because uh, because of the fact that I ordered them wholesale, uh, Gene and I did, of course, the obvious thing and took a set for ourselves. So I have a full set of those mint hardcovers from 1985, including a second printing of Planet of the Spiders. Ooh. So it's it's really neat to to have that. And my whole uh, my whole shelf, I got a whole shelf and a half shelf of those classic hardcovers, and about four boxes of Target books uh, somewhere in the back there. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, but it's taken a long time to amass. Like I said, 41 years of of getting bits and things. So it's it's been kind of fun, and I really do enjoy it. And it's interesting for me to hear these stories. I'm only a couple, a few years behind you in age, but you came into right. fandom much earlier and you had a much more entrepreneurial spirit than I did. I was getting these books through 1985 and 86 as my salary for babysitting. And I got most of the collection by then. And then when I started working on my own at age 15 in the summer of 89, I would start buying the rest of the books that I hadn't already purchased for me. The very last book in the original Target run, I actually got at Visions in Chicago in 1996. The only paperbacks that I'd never gotten at that point, which existed, were Power of Kroll and mm-hmm. Horror of Fang Rock. So I bought those two at Visions 96, and I read those in the Hyatt O'Hare lobby late on a Friday or Saturday <laughs> night. This was right after Thanksgiving those years. I, so I bet you bought those from Gene. Almost, certainly. <laughs> I don't remember which dealer was which. I know that Jeremy Bentham had a, a stall yes. in that dealer's room. I don't remember he which did. table I got it from, but probably almost certainly from Gene. But I was getting these at the old Walden Books at a mall okay. in Nassau County, Long Island. And sure. they did not stock any of the hardcovers. I had no direct connection to fandom other than watching PBS and seeing some of the fan groups go in. I didn't belong to any fan group. And when I went to my first convention in 1985, just 11 years old, I was only there a few hours. Spent a lot of time in the dealer's room, but I didn't make any connections. I was probably the youngest person there 
not only the youngest, but also the only one not wearing a Tom Baker scarf or so it would seem. (laughs) So I didn't know that the hardcovers were a thing, but when we were on vacation in Manhattan, uh, the very last week of 1985, and that's a story that I'll tell episodes 98 and 99 of the show. Sure. We were at the old forbidden planet. That was their location on 14th street and fourth Avenue slash park Avenue South the very bottom of Union Square. They are now a couple of blocks south of that, and it's their third or fourth location since the original. But they had a thriving Doctor Who shelf, and they had hardcovers, which I didn't know about. So I saw, I got paperbacks 98 and 99, The Invasion of the Crotons, but they had the hardcover for the two Doctors sitting right there, and I didn't know that that existed. Didn't know there was a hardcover, didn't know the book was out. I ended up not getting that. In pay, in, until paperback, because my dad was quite happy to get me paperbacks at $3 each, but splurging for the hardcover was beyond his um, spending tolerances. So I do yes. not, to, the, to this day, I do not own a single hardcover. My collection is limited to one copy of each book. Right. There's only three books that I've bought twice. My Dalek Invasion of Earth and my Claws of Axos, the binding, both fell apart in the late 80s. So I replaced those at one of the divisions, probably 97. Okay. And then I ended up at the last Gallifrey one earlier this year. I bought the original cover of Terror of the Autons with the Mike Little illustration. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. like to go back and start replacing the reprint covers in my collection with the original covers, the Chris Achilleoses and the Mike Littles. I have not done a lot of work on that yet because at this point in my life, my collection is getting passed on to nobody. My collection is getting incinerated <laughs> or thrown out on the curb as soon as I'm gone. So there's no pressing need to have multiple copies of each book other than to have the original cover art sort of as a brag. But it's very impressive what you've done. So Thank you. I didn't learn about Lyle Stewart until years later. Obviously, I knew the name. I can see it with my eyes closed. Lyle Stewart Enterprises, one tw- sorry, Lyle yes. Stewart Incorporated, 120 Enterprise Avenue, Secaucus, New Jersey. Right. Which is right across the river from us here. That's where... That's where Major League Baseball has their studios. I've been to baseball card yep. shows in Secaucus. Never been to Enterprise Avenue, but it wasn't until about 20 years ago that I learned who the real Lyle Stewart was, a maverick, mm-hmm. a radical, fascinating guy. So did you ever have dealings with him directly, or were you dealing with people who worked out of his uh, warehouse? I don't think we ever saw him himself when we dealt with, we had an agent that we had assigned to us uh, that we worked with on the phone uh, and it was real easy. I mean, we'd call them up and within like a couple of days, we'd have boxes of target books shipped to our shop. Uh, Well, actually it wasn't a shop. It was Gene's basement at the time, but, um, and we uh, had a great relationship with them. And I know sadly though, the company went completely bust and what was interesting with that is after the company had gone bust, there are copies of books that were published after that, that still had the Lyle Stewart information printed directly on the back. Cause for a while it was a sticker that was added. And then um, because one of the, uh, some of the hard covers that I have have the little price tag on the corner of the back of the book, it says $12 Lyle Stewart. And they had put the, the retail price on that. And, uh, but, like for instance, um, and then there was some argument too about some of the later books, like for instance, the smugglers, uh, the hardcover edition of the smugglers, which is the final hardcover, only a thousand were made has on the back of the book, 
USA distribution, Lyle Stewart. And I had to tell everybody, wait a minute, they stopped distribution in 1986. I know because I was the distributor. Huh. And and the that was why this catalog that I showed you was so uh, important because page two of the catalog listed every hardcover that we sold. And I said, I can tell you where we stopped. I mean, it was basically books up to 1985. So we had the Crusaders. We had the Abominable Snowmen. Uh, that was about it. Uh, we had some 1980 titles. We had a couple of 1979 titles, but we had basically what was left. We had the Key to Time books, uh, which were dust jacketed. We had um, we had the Sea Devils, which was an early print, the Doomsday Weapon early print. But then we had just a general run of all the 80, 80 81, 82, 83, 84, and 85. And so uh, after that, in 86, 87, 88, Hardcover books were no longer imported to the United States. There was no USA distributor during that time. And it became really hard for anybody in this country, and you may have experienced that yourself in the late 80s, that uh, Target books were very difficult to get. Some bookstores managed to get them through WH Allen directly, but the price went up. And that happened, and it happened again uh, and when Virgin was selling the new adventures, they had a great deal with uh, Borders and Barnes and Noble to get those books directly to them with displays. But then when their license got taken away from them, the last three titles never got shipped to the United States. So, so Vile of Sin, Lung Barrow and the Dying Days never came to the United States. At that point, I was already on the internet. I discovered Rec Arts Doctor Who the end of my yes. first year of college, spring of 92. So a couple of my friends, one who was in the UK, one who was in Canada, they were both able to get me copies of the book. So I have a complete run of the NAs, including So Sin and Lung Barrow. But okay. I was never able to find NAs in the shops pretty much after 1995. So my last 20 or 25 books were all directly mailed to me courtesy of a friend, courtesy of one yes. or two different friends. What I have now is the 1983 reprint of Destiny of the Daleks. So most yes. of my original books, the ones that I got in 85 and 86, they're all 82, 83, 84. And mm -hmm. I've gotten to the point in my fandom where I don't need to open to the copyright date to know what year it is because right. the 1982 books do not have the American price on the back. Yes. 83 is the first year that you have Lyle Stewart's name and business address on the back of the book. And the price That's is $3 right. and 50 cents right. starting in 84. The price goes up to two ninety-five, and you can see the adhesive. I peeled away a sticker. This would have been probably a Lyle Stewart sticker with the two ninety-five yes. price. Then when you peel it away, the older price is underneath like a palimpsest. And yes. then later on starting 85, 86, then you get the, uh, the uh, UPC code, the barcode on the back. And then the price starts going up to three dollars and fifty cents, etc. But I, I am not yet that at that point of the show because I am still on the nineteen seventy nine releases. Probably in a, several right. more months when I get to the eighty three, eighty four publications, then we'll start to see the barcode on the back and the price is going up. Well, in eighty one, uh, my my first the first thing I ever bought uh, in Doctor Who was a Target copy of Day of the Daleks, and it was four dollars and eighty cents uh, because there was no distributor yet. The guy at the comic store got them directly from WH Allen, had to pay a fortune in shipping and, in, and import fees. So when it was all said and done, he had to raise the price almost double what the price would have been uh, to make any money at all. 
And that was the, that was, it's kind of discouraging. You know, I bought one book and I bought a magazine and then, uh, well, this was actually the, the story goes basically my, my mother dropped me off at the comic shop while she did her grocery shopping. And so it was right around the corner. So after I was done, I met her at the grocery store and the checkout line, that's when I discovered the pinnacle books. Hmm. They were, they were all in the grocery store checkout line and, uh, they had uh, day of the Daleks, uh, the doomsday weapon and invasion and Genesis, the Daleks already there. And those were a dollar 25 each. So I said, wow. So I bought all three of those. And then to my luck, there was a little bin that said free, take one. And they were these pinnacle, um, like sample books that had a little page from uh, like a chapter sample of day of the Daleks, a chapter sample of doomsday weapon and a chapter sample of Genesis with the cover of day of the Daleks on one side and doomsday weapon on the other. It said free take one on had the Harlan Ellison introduction. And I said, well, gosh, I would love to take some of these. So my mom said I could have two. So I took two and I still have those two. Oh, wow. Yeah. I read this online. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if this is a, a half memory or a false memory. Mm-hmm. The publisher that Pinnacle Books has become, which is still headquartered in New York, yeah, I believe they are the same publisher that also bought out Lyle Stewart. Yes. So the two main distributors of Doctor Who in the States in the 1980s, Lyle Stewart and Pinnacle Books, are now both under the same corporate umbrella, which I find a nice, funny historical rhyme. It is funny. And and of course, there was a third publisher that was under everybody's nose here in 1979, the Aeonian Publishing Company. They did uh, copies of Day of the Daleks, Revenge of the Cybermen, uh, The Image of the Fendal, uh, and a f- couple others uh, that were done in hardcover without any printing on them and sold them in the United States. But to virtually nobody, like they did a hundred run on one. And then later uh, you could still like up until about a year ago, you could still get them new on Amazon before somebody figured it out and bought them all out. But they've been around since 79 and I didn't find out about them until 10 years ago. So there's, there's a lot of mystery in this whole realm of, of, of what happened here during that time period in the late seventies, the early eighties. So let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about your fandom origin, Chicago fandom in the 1970s and the early 80s and conventions, Mm -hmm. and we all have our anecdotes and the books. Let's talk (laughs) a little bit about the show itself. So you've been watching the show now for coming up on 50 years. You were there for 47 years. 47 years. And you were there for the very first airing in Chicago, which is probably Doctor Who's very first airing in the United States. It was very close. I think uh, I think there was another station that had it just before Chicago, but then Chicago got it right in the mid, in, right in seventy five, and it was uh, I was six years old when I started watching Doctor Who. And this is of course before you have the program guy. This is before it's easy to find out what the story order is, what the production order is. You're kind of watching this in the blind, and it's impressive that you're still watching a show that you started yeah. watching at six years old. When I was watching at age six the shows that I was watching are primarily long since off the air or no longer for my age group, such as Sesame street, electric company, right. Mr. Rogers neighborhood, three, two, one contact. I didn't start watching until I was 11, but what is your favorite era of doctor who going from 1963 up to the present day? What's your favorite era? My favorite era is the Peter Davison years. And I think it's because when uh, we were, we were sorely teased in uh, in that time period, because 
I was already buying Doctor Who magazine with Peter Davison on the cover. We had not seen him yet. And the conventions uh, in 84, they showed Ark of Infinity or 85, rather, Ark of Infinity. And it was the first time we'd seen any Peter Davison story. And so we kept calling our local PBS station saying, hey, are you going to get these? And they said, well, well, we've got them, but we've got, we're going to do them in a special way. So we waited. And then finally they said, well, we just bought a whole new package of Doctor Who. We got a new package of Pertwee's. We've got Baker's. We got the new Davison's. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start all the way back with the Pertwee era. And I said, Oh my gosh, we got to go through all the way through the Tom Baker era again. Oh, and wow. this is our this is our sixth time around the wheel here. And I, I believe me, I'm not knocking uh, the great Tom Baker. I got to meet him one uh, years ago. He's a great guy. I love the stories. But then I remember the night that they showed Castro Valva, and they said it was a record viewing because everybody had waited for that moment to see Tom Baker regenerate and start that story. And of course, um, on our PBS station on Sundays at six, they were showing all creatures great and small. And they did that to kind of get people ready for Peter Davison. It was really quite something. And when they showed him, I said, we just saw the first season up to time flight and we were glued to each one and just thought, wow, this is great. You know, this is great. And I, I was just kind of, you know, at the time I was remembering, you know, watching all of these stories and I'd seen, I'd seen the Baker stories five times each. I'd seen the Pertway stories twice around. Um, and it, it also, it also befuddled me the second time we saw Pertway stories, there were some in black and white because I had seen them in color, but I didn't know about the fact that they destroyed a bunch and all that. It was kind of crazy, but, um, they, the whole idea there that, you know, this, this, the, the, of course, at the time, the youngest actor to play the doctor and to come on with that different, uh, you know, the different personality. And I just thought, wow, this is great. I've seen three doctors through this time period and really got, you know, and of course they ended the Peter Davison era at time flight. And that's when they got the Hartnell Troughton package and decided to do that. And so that was the first time and not my first Hartnell. My first Hartnell was uh, episode two of the war machines. And it was a really bad copy. Oh, wow. That, um, we had a, we had a fan club in my hometown of Skokie. Uh, we're uh, called the emissaries of the white guardian. And the guy there had a setup where he imported tapes from England and converted them to VHS using a video camera. And so these were, you may have seen some of these, these flickering copies of black and white stories. Yes. Yeah. That, that was ground zero for it. Oh, wow. And uh, they, he sold them all across the United States, I guess for $50 a tape, you could get uh, spearhead from space. It had never been shown. That was never shown here the first time around. Uh, you could get um, the Crotons because they showed it in England for five faces or a carnival of monsters, which had just been shown or right. an unearthly child. Uh, so those episodes were floating around the United States right after that five faces uh, thing they did in England. And that was kind of cool, but to see uh, the episodes clearly <laughs> on TV was a first. And it was um, kind of, that was the first time we went through all of that. And then of course, uh, then I made some connections with people who said, well, I've got some of the missing stories. You know, I've got the rescue. I've got episode three of the reign of terror. I've got, mm. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to talk to you. I want to get that. So at the time, I had seen everything. And I'll I'll never forget, um, I was in college, I think, at the time. And my 
younger brother calls me and said, Hey, I just watched tomb of the Cybermen. I said, Hey, you're full of it because it doesn't exist. Well, I didn't know that they had found it and immediately released it on VHS. So he holds the phone up to the TV and I'm like, I'll be home this weekend. So I raced home and we sat in the bedroom and we, I, I watched it from beginning to end because I was just like, that was one of my favorite books reading. Cause I read a lot of the books uh, for the missing stories. And I said, well, man, this is great. They're starting to find these again. And then uh, a couple months later, five and 10 of uh, master plan was found in a church basement somewhere. And so that was exciting. And then it wasn't long after that, that somebody got a hold of a copy of it. I said, how did you get a copy of this? Well, they did a screening and people took video of it and, and decided to distribute it. So it's kind of, um, it's just really exciting to see those things. And that's, that's kind of how the episodes kind of found their way. And then uh, much later at last year at Chicago TARDIS, we had a, a, a panel on uh, basically it was uh, memories of the fan clubs of the eighties. And one of the people on stage was Stephen Warren Hill, who's a staff member at Chicago TARDIS. And he was a part of a club in the North suburbs of Chicago that was trying to destroy all these copies of pirated doctor who. He, they were trying to get a hold of them so they could take them out of circulation. And I said, well, that's interesting because there was a guy in Oak Park who would invite you down with your VCR and he would hook it up to this whole chain of VCRs and he would copy whatever the latest one was and you could get a copy for yourself, first generation. So it was really something how that worked. But the, like I said, the Peter Davison era was was my era. That's why I chose for, for myself. That's my costume that I that I do. Um, and uh, I've been working hard to get it, get it as authentic as I could. I'll be uh, I'll be wearing it for the first time at Chicago TARDIS in a couple of weeks. I did it. I did have it at Oktoberfest in Indianapolis a couple of weeks ago, and it was very popular. A lot of people stopped me for pictures. It was really nice. Um, but and Peter Davison himself is one of the nicest people I've ever met. And he comes across, you know, he's like, look, I've been asked everything that's been asked. And I said, really? I said, tell me about uh, your work on The Last Detective. He goes, well, nobody's asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had this amazing conversation for about 10 minutes uh, about that show. And I said, I really enjoyed it. I said, I watched every one and I thought this was great. I thought this work was, he's like, you've actually seen more than just Doctor Who. I said, that's, um, and they, they love that. With the actors, if you bring up another show they've been in, they, they're yours. Peter, I met briefly at Visions 97 in the hotel yeah. bar at 2 in the morning. Very, very nice guy. That was the first time that I'd ever spoken to a Doctor Who one-on-one, -on -one. coming into <laughs> fandom, of course, a little bit later than you. Yeah. And it's funny because I, being on Rec Arts, I heard about these episodes that were thought to be missing being released on VHS. So when I learned that Celestial Toymaker 4 was out there, on, on a VHS that you could buy in the store and that Dalek's master plan five and 10 were out there on a VHS you could buy in the store. And then tomb of the Cybermen gets released. I dragged my college roommate down to a mall in the Baltimore inner Harbor where they had a Suncoast video. Oh yeah. yeah I dropped 80 yeah. bucks on four VHS tapes on that day. I think it was Hartnell years, Troughton years, tomb of the Cybermen, Daleks or Cybermen, the earlier is one of those two. 
and a starving college student dropping $80 on VHS tapes might raise some eyebrows. It was worth every penny. I was paying off that credit card for years, but. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I did the same thing in college. You know, we had, uh, uh, where I was at in Bloomington, Illinois, we, there were places, uh, to get the videos. I had all my videos with me and my, my roommate was always curious. He's like, what is on all of these videos? I said, it's all Dr. Who. So <laughs> one, one day, one day I'm gone. He goes, I'm going to see what's on these videos. And he's like, Oh, it is Doctor Who. <laughs> I said, I told you it was Doctor Who. Uh, so it was, it was just, you know, and of course down there it was, it was uh, fine. Everywhere I moved to, it was like, where is Doctor Who playing on the, you know, where can I find the PBS station? Where can I do this? I, you know, I kept up with it all of those years. And, uh, and literally uh, that first day, I'll never forget this because my mom called me in the room and said, Hey, you might like this. Cause she had seen it in the TV guide and said, Oh, this might fit your, your thing. And I said, Oh yeah, sure. So I remember, I remember watching the mutants. I remember I made a, I made a Keller machine out of Legos. Oh, I wow. saw mind of evil. Uh, Cause I was just, I love that thing. That whole mind of evil story was so amazing. It gave me nightmares too, but um, day of the Daleks used to give me nightmares. I just watched it again yesterday. Cause it's still one of my favorite stories as far as, uh, John Pertwee as a Time Lord getting really ticked off in a situation, that speech where he goes, you did it yourselves, you know, that whole thing. And I said, that's a perfect thing. And uh, John Pertwee, I've got a lot of great memories with John Pertwee, too. He's uh, um, He came to our table in 85 uh, when we had our table at uh, TARDIS 22. Uh, Beeler's room opened at 10 o'clock. He was the first person through the door and walked up to our table and looked and said, look at all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, we were just jaws dropped and we're, we're talking with, with this legend of an actor. And he said, you know, I, I could bring you copies of my book. I've got moon boots and dinner suits in my room. And so I still have my signed copy that I got from John Pertwee. For 20 bucks, I gave him a 20. He gave me that book and signed it for me. I said, that was, I'll never forget that. They gave that away on my PBS station as yeah. a pledge drive gift in the mid to late 80s. So I've never, I've seen that at conventions, never actually bought it, do not have a copy, but I'm going to have to try and track that one down. It's a good book. Uh, I, I've read it and it's it's with his own humor. Uh, I think the later edition, uh, there's some changes to it because uh, he did a couple of revisions. But the original book is still a wonderful book. The cover of him on the cover wearing the green tuxedo with the moon boots. Yes. And tells the story basically of how his acting career started and how, you know, he was in the service and went through uh, a, every time he took a role, they call him by a different name. So at one point he was Jan Putrid. <laughs> and, and of course he talks a lot about uh, being married to Jean Marsh, um, which uh, not a lot of people know that that was his first wife, yes. uh, he, you know? And so he, and of course uh, that marriage ended uh, I think five years. And then of course he, he married Ingeborg who uh, was his wife till he died. And just a, uh, just a, an amazing uh, story. And of course uh, the man himself, you know, I had five minutes with him there. And then later in that convention, I get into an elevator to go back to my room. And in the corner is John Pertwee in full Wurzel Gummidge costume. <laughs> 
and makeup and character. And he's doing, oh, come on in, there's plenty of room. And then he hit he hit all the buttons. Oh. And so every time the elevator opened, there was this scarecrow staring at people, come on in, plenty of room. And people, some people were like, oh my God, it's John Pertwee. Mm. And, and I'll never forget, I told that story at a con and I said, you're not going to believe this. And somebody in the back row I could confirm that I was in the whole room. I was in the whole elevator with you because <laughs> this is before phones and before cameras. And so, I mean, immediately if that had happened today, it'd be, Oh, we got this, you know, but um, that was, that was, those were the, those were the days, man. I know we went off in five different avenues there, but it's just uh, the, the questions just remind me of all these things that happened. And it's just really cool to talk about. It's funny that you mentioned Gene Marsh. Now that I finished watching yeah. my Doctor Who all the way through 1963 to 2022, I've started doing a Twilight Zone pilgrimage, starting with the 1958 unofficial pilot. In a couple of days, I am coming up to the episode with Gene Marsh playing Jack yes. Warden's robot girlfriend. But as far as I can tell, there are only two actors that were on both original Doctor Who and the original Twilight Zone. So that would be Gene Marsh. And Terrence DeMarney, who was in The Smugglers, has a very small part, I think, in a season three or a season five Twilight Zone. And I forget which one, but I'll know it when I get there. Right, right. Um, yeah, there's uh, um, there's a wonderful – there's another podcast uh, I've, I've recommended before, John Hodgman's uh, iPodius. I don't know if you know that one. I've heard of John he, Hodgman, yes. Well, he, he does a thing where he watches iClaudius, which is an old PBS uh, series, and and goes through the, the basically, if they had been in Doctor Who in Blake 7 and iClaudius, that's the trifecta. And so, uh, of course, Brian, Brian Blessed plays Caesar Augustus, and of course, he's been in Doctor Who and Blake 7. So... <laughs> They, they go, it's really wonderful. John Hodgman's a huge Doctor Who fan, so I, that's why I always plug him whenever possible. I was raised in a masterpiece theater household, so everything, yes, everything stopped on Sunday night for my mother to watch masterpiece theater. So I remember her I, Claudius phase when it first aired in the States, and she got the I, Claudius paperback out of the library, and the front cover of which terrified me, because it's a pretty graphic image when you're four years old. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, of course, yeah. Sesame Street immediately lampoons I, Claudius, with Cookie Monster as me, Claudius. Me, Claudius, yeah. <laughs> me, Claudius. No, no, no. Me, Claudius. What? Me, Claudius? No, 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 no. Me, Claudius. No, no. Me, Claudius. Me, And so end our drama. Me still not know who Claudius, but me, Alistair Cookie, saying good night for Monsterpiece Theater. So although my mother never got into Doctor Who and doesn't really to this day understand my habit, anytime she would walk by the TV and she would recognize somebody either from from any masterpiece theater or upstairs, upstairs downstairs, she would always point out on the television. So Jenny Thomason's character in Revelation of the Daleks, she immediately recognized, uh, I want to say Philip Latham from The Five Doctors, she recognized him. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, her older sister was a huge fan of all creatures great and small. So when I showed up at my aunt's house in New Jersey with a copy of the Castro Valva novelization with the Peter Davison photo cover, <laughs> my aunt immediately recognized Tristan from All Creatures Great and Small. Yeah, and I know uh, Anthony Ainley had been in Upstairs Downstairs as well. Uh, so he was uh, that was he was somebody that I recognized from watching Upstairs Downstairs because I used to watch Masterpiece Theater was a big mainstay. That Moray's Rondo is still one of my favorite pieces to play, uh, even though they don't really do it anymore. But it's it, it's still a it's still a classic. That old Sunday night was um, was just in our house. That was Masterpiece Theater, and then later Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> I watched a lot more Masterpiece Theater with my mother than she watched Doctor Who with me. But anytime she saw an actor on screen that she recognized, it was always a moment for her to be excited. My mom continued to watch Doctor Who up until her passing. So it was uh, she she had always loved the show and she she was always proud of the fact that it became part of my life. And I think today, if she if she had been around, uh, she'd be listening to the podcast and saying, hey, that's my that's my son. And I started him on that back in 75. So and that's just wild when I think about 47 years and I'm still watching the show. I just, I did, I watched power of the doctor with visible gasps, got up out of my chair at one point and I'm like, wait a minute. No, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. The William Russell cameo was the greatest television moment of 2022. There's nothing better than that moment. And he only gets one line of dialogue, six words, but nothing is better than that. It was great, and I hope the Guinness Book uh, thing turns out. I guess they're looking at it being the longest gap between appearances on TV as the same character. 1965 to 2022. That's pretty good. And, uh, of course, Katie Manning was very tight-lipped about the whole thing. Yes. Because she tells she tells me everything, but she was really keeping that close. And I, I, I talked to her the day after, and I said, I was so pleased that you were there. And I said, that was just brilliant. And she said, yes, I loved it. It was great to see all those people. And uh, though, you know, there were some people that were missing uh, from that group uh, because I guess uh, Annika Willis was supposed to be there, but she couldn't, her health has not been good lately. Um, But that would have been nice to see Polly there. That would have been kind of, kind of neat. She was contemporary. And they were very careful to pick characters that would have lived to the 20th century, not people that like, like Jamie McCrimmon would have died in the 1700s and Zoe's in the future. And um, they were really careful to keep it like, well, wait a minute. Cause everybody would have torn apart if they saw somebody there. Wait a minute. That person died in the 1800s. How could this happen? Um, but that was really brilliant. Oh gosh. Yeah. Then the show just keeps getting better and better. And I'm looking forward to the, to the, to the shooty episodes coming up soon even though we have practically a year to get there. But we have several conventions in the middle, so we'll be seeing our old favorites, and we'll have many more conversations like this. Larry, thank you so much for joining me on Doctor Who Literature. I'm looking forward to the next episode of your show. And I do have your trailer in heavy rotation in this show, because I do one trailer every week. So you're coming up pretty much every three weeks. Fantastic. And uh, thank you very much for having me, and it's great to have you in our network. Thank you again. Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks, written by Terence Dix, televised as Destiny of the Daleks, teleplay by Terry Nation, as rewritten by Douglas Adams, screen credit to Terry Nation, televised in September 1979, 
published in November 1979. Landing on an apparently devastated planet, the Doctor and Romana make a horrifying discovery. The planet is Ascaro, homeworld of the Daleks. The Daleks are excavating in order to find and revive Davros, the mad, crippled, scientific genius that first created them. They hope he will give them the scientific superiority to break the deadlock with their mobile and enemies. Faced once more with the deadly and seemingly indestructible Daleks, the Doctor's wits and strength are stretched to their very limits. One of the words in that back cover blurb is very badly dated, and I hesitated to read it, but it is on the cover, so my apologies. At the time, this was the second fastest turnaround time between the airing of the parent TV serial and the release of the Target novelization. Which is funny, as this book came out right after Doctor Who and the War Games, which, at ten years from airing to book release, was the second slowest turnaround time. The record for slowest at this point in the book's history, autumn 1979, was the novelization of the Dalek Invasion of Earth, which came out 13 years after the fact. The record holder for fastest turnaround time had been Doctor Who and the Giant Robot by the same author, which came out on March 13, 1975, a little less than two months after Part 4 of Robot had aired on January 18, 1975. For Destiny of the Daleks Episode 4, the only Tom Baker serial, where the installments were called episodes instead of parts, and after 1974's The Green Death, the only other Doctor Who serial to call its installments episodes, aired September 22, 1979, while the book came out on November 20, 1979. 55 days for Robot versus 59 days for Destiny. Call that a virtual tie. It is quite possible that Terence Dix started writing this novelization before the serial was even produced. The exteriors for Destiny were filmed in June 1979, while the two studio recording blocks were in July. For a book to come out in late November, you have to assume that Terence would have started the writing process about six months earlier, give or take. He was likely working from the camera scripts which would have been from director Ken Grieve via script editor Douglas Adams, the latter of whom once claimed to have written the entire script himself, where Grieve has credited him with writing 95% of it. There are some dialogue differences between TV serial and novelization, which we'll talk about below, and the lines that were cut in between the book and the TV serial sound a lot more like Douglas Adams than they do Terry Nation. So is this book rushed? Is the text only 104 pages long, and that's with large print, because the author had literally nothing to work on but camera scripts, and probably not even set photos? To quote the Doctor Who serial filmed before this one, but aired immediately after this one, I don't care, one jot. You see, this is one of my original three. Many of you have heard this story before, or read this story before, but as my audience is quite a bit larger now than it was the last time I would have told this story, way back in episode 12, Doctor Who and the Cybermen, I'm going to tell it again. If you haven't heard the story before, well, listen on. And if you have heard the story before, well, listen again. It's Super Bowl Sunday, 1985, as America was gearing up to cheer on the San Francisco 49ers over the Miami Dolphins in Stanford, California.
then yes, I keep having to look that up on Wikipedia whenever I tell the story I can never remember. My father would have sat on the family room downstairs, watching President Reagan toss the ceremonial kickoff coin on TV. I would have been upstairs reading my first batch of novelizations. I'd been a Doctor Who fan for barely two months, and that morning my father had bought me my first three novelizations as payment for having babysat my younger sister after school during the week. The pay was two books every two weeks. That amounted to $6 every two weeks, not even minimum wage for 1985. I would get an extra book if I babysat on Saturday nights if my parents chose to go out. So on this particular Sunday morning, I had picked out Doctor Who and the Cybermen, episode 12, the novelization of The Invasion of Time, a forthcoming episode, and this, a Daleks book. Daleks, Cybermen, Time Lords. I'd only been watching the show for not even two months, but I already was obsessed enough to know that these were important books for my first set, and I read them in chronological order, starting with the novelization of The Moon Base. The next day, Monday, would have been a day off school, Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend, and I had all three books finished before I went to school on Tuesday morning. The Moon Base novelization is near perfection, Jerry Davis being one of the unsung best authors in the Target line. That Invasion of Time, which we'll talk about probably in a few more weeks, remains one of my personal favorite Terrence books. I even got him to autograph it for me years later at the L.I. Who convention in 2014. Destiny of the Daleks, I think, even though it's short, stands up among his better work, even though I don't talk about it as much, it having been the last of my original three novelizations. Looking to the first chapter of Destiny alone, I realize now how much mythology I was soaking up back in January 1985, a fan for less than two months. In the opening pages, Terence introduces the TARDIS, the space-time vortex, K-9, and in a lengthy sequence, the Time Lords, and Romana's ability to regenerate, played somewhat for laughs on TV, but surprisingly written matter-of-factly in the book. Now, listen, you listen to me there. What you want is something warm and sensible, something to wear well, something with a bit of style and... And was style, you know. How about this, Doctor? Exactly, good heavens, that's exactly right. Ha. I never realized you had such a sense of style. I thought you said external appearances weren't important. Ah, but it's nice to get them right, though, isn't it? Ah, but it's what's inside that counts. Exactly. Oh. Don't you like it? I think it'll do very nicely. The arms are a bit long. I can always take them in. No, 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 no. The arms are just fine. They're just fine. It's just that... Oh, well, all right. Have it your own way. But get rid of those silly clothes, eh? Where are we going? I don't know. It depends on the randomizer. Let me know when we get there. We've arrived. What? I said we've arrived. We got there. What's the place like? Uh, oh, breathable atmosphere. High degree of seismic activity. What? Lots of earthquakes. Oh, seismic. I thought you said psychic. Psychic? Like it? I haven't seen it yet. Look, if you want to talk to me, will you come in here and do it, please? What? Never mind. Once the TARDIS materializes on Scarrow, Terence lets his usual effortless evocative prose describe the arrival. Quote, The landscape was bleak and harsh, 
an arid stone plain scattered with strangely angular rocks. Thunder growled menacingly in a dark and alien sky, and the very ground seemed to shiver and vibrate. Terence doesn't include the comic, Ooh, look, rocks, line, which was presumably invented by Tom Baker in studio, but he gives the setting plenty of atmosphere nonetheless. Terence also points out that deja vu, quote, was a common phenomenon among time travelers. One of many examples of Terence using brief 12-word asides or jabs or jousts to lend the book an authenticity in spite of its slender size. Chapter 1 ends with the doctor asking a rhetorical question, and Terence writes in a crisp mini cliffhanger, quote, The only answer was another roll of thunder. The oral assault of the Daleks' underground drilling leaves behind a, quote, silence that almost seemed to hurt. The TV episodes are generally derided as being a mashup of generic, recycled Terry Nation plots versus grafted-on, sophomoric Douglas Adams humor. That is not my opinion, by the way. I love the story. But if you come to the book from the novelization first, as I did, it reads like a pretty serious, no-holds-barred epic. Terence even generously describes the Daleks' sink-plunger arms as, quote, a sensitive scanning device, belying their plumbing origins. Working with only 104 pages of text, and putting the manuscript on the shelves as closely following the televised episodes as any novelization ever was, Terence never misses a chance to comment on the action. Tyson collapses unconscious, quote, falling stiffly like a cut-down tree. Several hints are dropped that the Movilans are robots, long before the TV episodes let us in on the secret. On TV, David Gooderson's portrayal of Davros is, in my opinion, rightly critiqued as lacking the subtlety and menace of Michael Wisher's original performance in Genesis of the Daleks, at least until the season 17 Blu-ray trailer came out and Gooderson revised his role and nailed it. Terence, writing in 1979, is working from the scripts, so really can't get around the key problem with Gooderson's performance. Gooderson is being handed charmless and insane dialogue. Very difficult to make that work. Terence can, however, describe Davros with nightmarish intensity. Quote, The face was the most horrifying thing of all. Parchment-thin skin clung to a shriveled skull. The eyes were sunken pits. The mouth a thin cruel gash. Wires and plastic tubes formed a helmet-like arrangement suspended over the head. Even in life, the man could have been only barely alive, thought Romana. Lungs, heart, speech, hearing, sight, everything must have been mechanically or electronically aided. The creature was more machine than man. Now, what's interesting is that elements of that description of Davros are drawn from Terence's earlier novelization, Doctor Who and the Genesis of the Daleks. The line about parchment-thin skin is taken over directly, as is the phrase helmet-like arrangement. However, Terence has rewritten the line, and the mouth has graduated from a lipless slit in the original Genesis of the Daleks, a line that Terence would later recycle when describing the Sontarans. But now the line is a thin, cruel gash. So Terence is not just recycling himself, he is giving a new description of Davros. And it's pretty intense. Terence in Destiny adds a reference to the Doctor having tried to give military advice to General Custer, 
When the Doctor thinks he's blowing up Davros, Terence puts the moment at the end of the chapter, and includes a flashback to Genesis of the Daleks, which of course he's novelized earlier, as I've just discussed, and Terence has the Doctor reflect that he once missed an opportunity to blow up the Daleks at their moment of creation, and asking, quote, who knows what horrors he had unleashed upon the universe. But there's humor in the book, too. As Romana is telling the Movilans too much about the Doctor, she checks herself, quote, thinking it was just as well the Doctor wasn't there. He was quite conceited enough already. The usual slight differences against the TV episodes are interesting to note. The female Movilin, played by Cassandra on TV, was presumably a last-minute casting choice. That character is described as male in the book. The most Douglas Adams line ever written in a non-Douglas Adams book, quote, I knew the universe was done for the moment they invented the washing machine. It does thankfully not appear on television. In fact, the part four material in the book contains a lot of dialogue which isn't on TV. Possibly this was cut during studio taping due to running time concerns. Conversely, missing is one of my favorite Tom Baker ad-libs. I'll go alone, ask me why. Why? They're unconscious. The other review of Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks on the Doctor Who Ratings Guide is pretty negative about the thing. But I can't be. In 110 pages, Terence socks in a ton of mythology, funny asides, taut prose, and a bunch of extra lines of dialogue that weren't on TV. I'm very glad this book was one of my first. That was $2.95. Well spent. All elephants are pink. Nellie is an elephant. Therefore, Nellie is pink. Logical? Perfectly. You know what a human would say to that? What? Elephants aren't pink. Ah, humans do not understand logic. They're not slaves to it like the Daleks or the Mavellans. That's why the Daleks came back for you. They remember they were once organic creatures themselves, capable of irrational, intuitive thought. And they wanted you to give it back to them, to get them out of their trap of logic. I have failed! Yes. What does it feel like? What will happen to me? A high-security ship has started out from Earth to meet us. You will be taken to stand a trial for your crimes against the whole of sentient creation. There is not a ship, not a prison that can hold me! No, but I think this little device can. It's a cryogenic freezer. Even you can't escape from a solid block of ice. Bye-bye, Davros. Next week on Doctor Who Literature. It is December 1979, the end of the 1970s, arguably one of the greatest and most fashionable decades of all time, and the very first time that I was awake at midnight on New Year's Eve, as the 1970s gave way to the 1980s, a much less interesting decade, but the decade that saw me become a Doctor Who fan, so better things are coming. I will be joined next week by a friend of the program and my sometimes co-producer, David Barsky. It is always a good time when David is in the house. We are going to have a lot to discuss. I may try to sell him the Sydney Opera House. Join us next week as we discuss Ian Martyr's novelization, Doctor Who, and the Rebos operation.
Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Special thanks to my special guest, Larry von Mersbergen. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. My old tweets about the entire series under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage. That's DR Who Pilgrimage. My current Twilight Zone watch through under hashtag TZ Pilgrimage. And on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.